0: Hey, everybody. This is Daniel Patrick. This is episode number 57 of the Mandolins of Beer Podcast, brought to you in part by my favorite website, The Mandolin Cafe. Man, I've got some cool stuff to tell you guys here in just a second. First, I want to get to my incredible sponsors who help make these podcasts possible. First up, Peg Nation. Peghead Nation streaming video courses in mandolin, guitar, banjo, fiddle, dobro, ukulele, and bass. You'll learn bluegrass, old time, and other styles from some of the most talented players and instructors in roots music. Pegheadnation.com features a great lineup of mandolin instructors with courses including beginning mandolin, intermediate bluegrass mandolin, and her new fingerboard method with Sharon Gilchrist. Bluegrass Mandolin, Jam Favorites, and the Advancing Mandolinist with Joe K. Walsh. Monroe Style Mandolin with Mike Compton. Melodic Mandolin Tunes with John Reichman. Chord Melody Mandolin with Aaron Weinstein. Irish Mandolin with Marla Feibish and Theory for Mandolin and Fiddle with Chad Manning. Courses include high-quality multi-angle video lessons, downloadable notation and tab, play-along tracks, and plenty of tunes and songs to play. Join any of Peghead Nation's video courses now. Get your first month for free. Just go to pegheadnation.com and use the promo code MANDOLINBEER at checkout. And it's also brought to you by the incredible people over at Northfield Mandolins. Northfield Mandolins. Let's build more than a mandolin together. Check out their website at northfieldmandolins.com and download their app at mandosummit.app. That's .app for lots of special performance recordings, demonstrations, and special workshops. All right. All the news here. Let's see. First up, uh, this Monday, Tristan Scroggins, track by track of the new Scroggins Rose album. It is so good. I'm sure you've heard it already, but if you haven't, purchase it. Listen to it on Spotify. Go out there and get yourself a copy, and we're going to do the track by track and get the backstory on it from Tristan himself. That will be coming out this Monday. And uh, I was hoping to have it for this week, but it will be ready for next week. Um, I've come up with a kind of a cool little thing, you know, I've been working, I spend every day warming up and doing 10 minute a day things, and I get a lot of questions about double stops as well. And I've come up with a pretty cool new method, I think. I don't know if it's really new, but I kind of came up with it myself on how to discover some of these double stop shapes more easily. I mean, it's the most signature sound of bluegrass mandolin, I think, and, and they're a blast to play, but a lot of people have a lot of questions about them. And I think I found a way to really make it a little bit easier. So that's going to be coming up here. And it's just going to be $10 for a couple videos and the tabs. It's going to be all 12 keys. It's going to show you how to practice them and how to find them. And if you're a Patreon member, if you are one of my $8 Patreon level members, you are going to get it for free. And if you're the $4 level Patreon member, you'll be able to get it just for a couple bucks more. Um, so I'm looking forward to having that out. Um, and I think it's really good stuff. I'll have a little bit of a, a video describing it here too shortly. And finally, put these dates in your calendar. September 26th and October 24th Maybe the 23rd. Definitely September 26th. And I'm going to be putting together, I've already got the guests confirmed, the, the studios confirmed, we're going to be doing live streams, mandolins and beer live stream events from different cities across the country. September 26th is Nashville, Tennessee, and it's gonna be me and some of my favorite pickers that have been on this podcast getting together and playing tunes, and and it's gonna be streamed on Facebook. It's gonna be done professionally with high def cams and studio quality sound. Uh, No public, unfortunately, but you will be able to check it out for a donation price and all that stuff will be announced soon. So, if you don't have a Facebook page, it is only going to be on Facebook, but it's going to be a top secret Facebook page that you will get a link to uh, with a donation. And I can't wait, as some of my favorite players, I've been wanting to do this, like I said, for forever. And I couldn't be more excited. And I think when you hear the players, you're going to be excited as well. So, those will be the players will be announced for the Nashville date uh, next podcast although I might tease him I might tease him on the Instagram as well if you follow me on Instagram All right with that let's get into it with Billy Bright Billy what a nice guy with the craziest stories man he has got some stories he's played with some people some incredible players he's a great guy he's got a great new album out with his band Wood and Wire he's also got a new Patreon page you can find all those links at mandolinsandbeer.com Cheers everybody All right and now I'd like to welcome to the podcast Billy Bright. Billy, how you doing? Great. Great. Good to be here. How are you? I'm good, man. Thanks for taking the time. I have to give you the um, the honorary, I don't even know what title it would be, but yours was the first email I had received where somebody said, he said, he can't drink beer unless you do it after six. And I'm like, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, Perfect.
1: Serious so, stay-at-home dad, you know.
0: <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah. So how you doing, man? What's going on in your world? You guys got a brand new album out that is just just phenomenal.
1: Well, thanks. Yeah that's that's been uh, that's been keeping me busy. Um, strangely enough, um, we can't go out and tour to support it or anything, but somehow with the new the new norm of uh, of us emailing in video and radio video and audio recorded, uh, radio bits and stuff. We've been like, I feel like a full, a full-time production warehouse over here. Just, uh, <laughs> you know, emailing people recordings of songs to play for their pseudo live radio shows and stuff. It's it's kind of a trip, but that's, that's what keeping me busy. And, and yeah, the, you know, the, my wife's a teacher and my kids are going back to school and this new brand new situation so that's been keeping me busy <laughs> Wow! yeah. <laughs> so, man. i got a full platter, you know
0: that's uh yeah that's so wild and you guys have a live stream coming up in september september 12th you were saying
1: yeah that's right we're gonna um do uh sort of uh uh you know do all of our cd release celebrations across across the world at once <laughs> <laughs> perfect <laughs> on September 12th on our, on our Facebook and YouTube pages uh, with the uh, wooden wire band. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And um, thank goodness, by the way, I guess that of all things, at least um, you still have a way to reach your audience. I mean, it's not the way everybody would want to do it, but at least people have access to still seeing you live and they have access to a a, a new album and all these things that, you know, technology has let us have. For as much as technology is a pain, uh, it's pretty nice right now.
1: It's true. It's changed my perspective on, on it all. Um, very much so. I mean it immediately last spring when when this all started happening and and like my kids, you know, couldn't go back to school and couldn't see their friends and all that stuff, I immediately saw the the upside of all of it and then I was kinda like, Oh crap, I'm I've I haven't paid attention to it for so long. (laughs) (laughs) I'm really behind, (laughs) but it's uh, I appreciate all the mediums that are out there now. And it's, um, it's it's kind of amazing that they're all in place in time in this time of need.
0: Right. And we were talking too a little bit, kind of, kind of before we started recording about how this, this mandolin community is, has been so awesome and all the support, a lot of the, like our friends and people we know who play this music and, um, have been supporting and supportive. It's just like a great community of players that's really been helping a lot of these a lot of people out. You know,
1: it is. It's uh, the mandolin community is a really um, really special group. I've 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 noticed over over the years. <laughs> um,
0: yeah. So that's so. How did you uh, how did you find yourself part of the mandolin community?
1: Oh man. That's... <laughs> That's something I wonder about regularly. Um, (laughs) I, uh, um, no regret, but I, um, I, uh, I guess I eventually in my, in my upbringing, uh, my, my, I have an older brother who's about four years older than me and we, uh, eventually, he, I mean, he's always, he's like a head, you know, like a super music head, not just the dead head, but, but he was that, he has been that, he was one of those old school, like Grateful Dead tapers and stuff, you oh, know, cool. back before the, before the internet and when everybody would mail each other tapes back and forth to each other and do trades and all that stuff. He was into that, but before he was even into that, he was just a super, uh we were part of that, like, you know, MTV came out when I was like, In kindergarten or something Or or second grade or something And it was just like And he was like In seventh grade or something So he was always a super music head But anyway Eventually At some point in time Um After we got into Rock and roll We went from punk to rock and roll To psychedelic rock and stuff And then Right about all at once At the same time I got into Um Uh the Grateful Dead, and it was right when that Garcia Grisman album came out in the early 90s. At the same time, I was also following around a band called Colonel Bruce Hampton and the Aquarium Rescue Unit, um, who had uh, this mandolin player by the name of Matt Mundy, who um, was, uh, and it's still to this day, um, probably the most mind-boggling mandolin player that I've ever witnessed. And also, right about the same time, the first time I ever got to see acoustic music live, and what really just sunk the last nail in the coffin for me was when I came to see my brother in Austin. I grew up in El Paso, Texas, but I, I came to visit my brother in, you know, sort of the cultural hub of Texas where he was living in Austin at that time, and um, went and saw the the Bad Livers play around 1992, and that was oh, uh, oh yeah. The first time I ever saw a live banjo or upright bass or fiddle, and it was Danny Barnes and Mark Rubin and Ralph White and playing in a tiny little club in Austin. Barnes wearing a motorhead shirt and singing a Metallica song and you know, ripping the absolute crap out of the banjo and that was what kind of sucked me for acoustic music. But yeah, the Grisman and, and Matt Mundy and then and then after that I I uh it was just all it was just like falling off a cliff after that. Um as far as uh when I went off to college I I um I went to Boston and um uh you know there was back then the only place you could find the really good bluegrass was on um vinyl at record stores because it hadn't been put on CDs and it was just, like all that old stuff and i remember i discovered all this stuff all that um you know the bluegrass album band and the Manzanita record and sam bush and uh all the other and then i mean of course bill monroe and just all the mandolin stuff and i saw it on all these records and stuff and i didn't even know about bluegrass festivals or anything. none of it seems it all seemed just like magic to me i didn't think that these people were even real you know that's how i got into mandolin basically and uh um yeah, my brother at one point in time lived in Nashville before he moved back to Austin, and uh, he went to Vanderbilt, and um, I went up there to see him. And um, I, when I was in, you know, middle school or high school or something, I had seen the mandolin on some certain things, and like heard it on Led Zeppelin records, and and seen it on seen it on TV with the REM records, and seen that part of the video, the Paradise City video, where Slash is like playing one in a music store, and. <laughs> You know, I had like seen them and stuff and I was like, What did you know? And then and then um about the time that I had figured out about the Garcia Grisman stuff and Matt Mundy and all that, I was visiting my brother in Nashville and there used to be all these like tiny like music stores there and I can't remember what I, I can't remember what street they were on, but I mean it was long I mean it was a totally different Nashville than now, but it would. but um there used to be this area that had all these like little music stores that were just in like tiny I mean I went to groom guitars and all that stuff too, but there was these music stores with just like just like a small little room that you walk into off the street and there's just instruments hanging from the ceiling. You know, and you walk around like in a row and a couple rows and that was all there was and I I found a mandolin and, and bought one and took it took it home with me to El Paso when I was probably a junior or senior in high school and just kind of thumped around on it. I was getting into acoustic music and all that. It wasn't just mandolin. It was acoustic music. You know, I was getting into all the Neil Young acoustic stuff and the hot tuna stuff was a big, was a big thing for me. The hot tuna and the bad livers and, um, all that acoustic stuff. Um, I got into that sort of stuff way before I got into got bluegrass specific. It was as I sort of like, um, learned more about the mandolin that I came, became a little more, uh, bluegrass-centric for a while to do my due diligence,
0: you know. But um, Yeah, that hot, I loved that Hot Tuna. Did you ever get to see them play? No, no, I wish. Oh, man, yeah. yeah to have you? So great.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. Many times, yeah. I used to follow them around. I mean, when they were, they would show up and it would be like Jack and Yorma in a, in a, like a red Corvette and they would just pull up to the gig, get out and, you
0: know. <laughs> oh my God. That's wow. That's hilarious, man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. Did you take like any lessons or did you, uh, did you, are you self-taught?
1: On the mandolin? Um, well, I, uh, I never really took lessons per se. Like I didn't have a mandolin instructor. I went to, I went to Berkeley to college, but it was, it was, um, it was way before they, um, I mean, they didn't have a mandolin department. They didn't have any, I mean, the, I've taught mandolin for years, years and years and years. And like I've in the in, in recent times since they have a bluegrass department there and all that stuff, I've had students who I've had to like, you know, uh, write write recommendation letters for and who have told me all about how difficult it is to get in there, you know, and I when I when I applied, it was like they were trying to get people to go there. <laughs> and so it was like, it was like 10 questions, you know, um, and it was kind of like check, you know, how well, you know, the major scale, good, bad, or excellent. I didn't even, (laughs) I didn't even know what any of that stuff was. So I asked a friend of mine and and she was like, Oh, excellent. Excellent. You know, so I just put (laughs) excellent on everything and, and, and I got in and, and, um, you know, I went there and I, of course got completely, you know, my ass handed to me, but, um, but, uh, so I didn't take music lessons on the mandolin, but I did study guitar there. And then oh, cool. when I was there, yeah, when I was there about a year of being there, um, I started a band, um, with, uh, with some of my, uh, like the guys on my hall. And then, well, I guess it was even my second year of being there. or something. I went there for a year, took a year off and went back and when I went back, I started a band and it was called the Too High String Band. like Andy Hall, you know, he was in that the original version. We went to Berkeley together and um but uh when I left there a couple years later when I was still way too young and inexperienced to get the job. I got the I got a job um playing mandolin for Peter Rowan and Tony Rice, which I did for like 5 years and that's where I got my mandolin education (laughs) um because uh i was you know not really prepared for that either but what happened there is i got to be around and watch all these incredible mandolin players like right up close in person and get like i mean like just like basically like lessons from everybody and um so that was where i that was where I took my mandolin lessons, basically. Um, Man, that's I remember, amazing. Yeah, we used to do this. Um, you know, Rocky Grass has that Rocky Grass Academy or whatever. Yeah,
2: yeah.
1: Um, and whenever we would play Rocky Grass, which he did for like, you know, every year that I was playing with him, and um, Peter always did that uh, um, the academy. He was like a mainstay there every year. He was one of the guys who was there every year. And he insisted that they hire his band as like, you know, they didn't hire us as instructors, but they hired us as like, um, uh, roving like teacher's assistants or whatever. And mm-hmm. so, so basically I got to like teacher assists for, you know, everybody from John Moore to Ronnie McCurry and Mike Marshall and Roland White. And, uh, um, Yeah, you know, everybody. So it was like they would show it to me and then I'd have to go around and help the class show it, show it to the class. So It was like getting, you know, private lessons from all these guys for many years, not to mention all the people that I ended up on stage with that I was, you know, uh, mortified to be on stage with as a mandolinist, (laughs) such as, you know, like Sam and, um, and, uh, but that, you know, they were all very, I mean, couldn't be nicer folks and more encouraging. So that was helpful too.
0: <laughs> That's crazy, man. So uh, yeah. how, how did you, how'd you find, how'd you get that gig? That's, I mean, like uh, pretty, pretty select number of people who played with Tony Rice for uh, let alone five years.
1: <laughs> right. Well, um, I, I, you know, I can't say that it was Tony that called me, but, um, well, you could. What happened? Well, <laughs> okay. Tony called me. He heard about me. Um no, uh so what happened was um uh, I started playing with Peter and Peter about that same time um, had started playing with Tony as a duet. And then um and then basically Peter was like you know, told Tony, he's he like, we should just, you know, integrate this band that I have into the into this duet and make it a quartet, and then and then we tried it and it was a it was a success. So it was kind of like it was kind of a deal there for a while, you know, uh-huh. um, and that's how I ended up playing with Tony for that long. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, wow. What's that yeah. like? Cause that's, I mean, that's, that's another level of bluegrass guitar playing right there.
1: Well, it was incredible, you know, I mean, um, be- I mean, well, first of all, like, I mean, I, the reason that I met Peter is because I got into bluegrass through Garcia and Grisman, which of course led me immediately to Olden in the way. Right. And, um, and so I was a complete Olden in the way fanatic. And so, when I moved to Austin in 1997, I saw that Peter was playing at the Cactus Cafe, and I went there and and um, you know waited after the show and and hung out with him and then went out to Kerrville to see him. He was hanging out there and we went to dinner and he didn't have any money. He, he forgot his money so I had to buy up dinner and <laughs> then um and then <laughs> and then I was up in Colorado a year later and uh a few months later in the summer and, and uh he um he was playing a show there and I had the night off so I went to check it out and he was playing solo and he remembered me and he was like, You bring your mandolin? I went and got my mandolin and, and we played and then you know played the whole show with him and and then um a few months later um got the call from his agent to see if we wanted to go do uh, like a a tour and um did that and then at the end of that, as he explains it, he said something like, "Well what do you have coming up and I said something like oh i have i have no I have nothing in the future and he says and that's that's when I knew we were gonna <laughs> play as a band or whatever.
0: <laughs> oh my gosh, that's and, so cool! Yeah, but so anyway, so
1: I pers- you know I I met Peter and then eventually it turned into that and then the thing with Tony and then yeah I mean I mean Tony, it, 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 he's he so I got into Olden in the Way and then of course that led me to like the the David Grisman Quintet and when right. I when I first heard Tony Rice it was like holy sh. And then I heard that Man record and it was like, holy, you know, <laughs> yeah. and then, and then, and then I got into the Bluegrass album band and all that stuff. And that, this all happened in the span of like, you know, a year or two. And then two years after that I was playing with Tony. So it was, it was, it was really, really weird. I mean, it was really bizarre, but you know, he was a super nice guy and super um encouraging and uh and very cool and so um musically speaking i mean playing playing with him playing rhythm guitar i mean you you asked me where i if I've ever took any mandolin lessons, and I didn't really take mandolin lessons, but I did take rhythm lessons from playing with him <laughs> because uh because you know, I mean, that's no—that's no joke. I mean, he could—he can cut through basically anything with that rhythm guitar and make you play in time with him. You know, um, it was incredible. So, and you know, we were playing through microphones to really large audiences with really bad sound most of the time. Not using in ears, nobody showing up for sound check, and people in the audience getting super stop and yelling when they couldn't hear Tony's guitar. I mean, being on stage in that situation was, it was challenging because you couldn't hear anything. We weren't plugged in. So I didn't, I never had like a, I remember what always happened every single night. Um, oh. was, you know, I get tuned up backstage and we weren't plugged in. So you didn't, and we didn't have these clip on tuners. You know what I mean? <laughs> right, were so, right. were so tuners. <laughs> and, um, we would get tuned up backstage and then walk on stage, and of course, um, and I was, I was playing this old, this really awesome mandolin I have, but it's like, um, it's like really sensitive to weather and heat and light and I mean, you know, just temperatures and stuff like that. And you'd walk out on stage, and it would just hit, get under those lights, and immediately just like go you know, out of tune, you know, and um, and uh, no tuners or nothing and. And so it was just uh, there's a lot of challenging situations there. I remember, I remember Tony once said he was like, "Oh, you know, Sam Sam Bush. One thing about Sam, he's always in tune." And I was like, oh. <laughs> "Damn, damn! Well, he's plugged into that boss tuner, you know." And he's like, I mean, I know he has a good ear, but for God's sake, he's
0: plugged in. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's great. Oh my gosh! I can't imagine the stress of people screaming because they can't hear Tony Rice's guitar. Oh my gosh!
1: Well, that was you know he was like a, he was kind of like like a, people were. I mean, as we know, because I was one of them, <laughs> I, but I never got to see him play live before I was playing on stage with him. Um, but uh, I didn't think. I mean, he's another one of those persons that I didn't think was could be real. You know what I mean? And um, uh, and then. You know, a couple of years later, there I was on stage. But yeah, I mean, people were fanatical about about him. I mean, I mean, uh, you know, for with good reason. He he's he uh, he rewrote the book. Right, right. <laughs> you know, so
0: yeah. Man, that's that's anyway. literally like like a daydream come true. Like everybody's been at a show where they're like, man, I wish I you know, he asked me to bring a Mandolin up, I'd go up there and play Mandolin with him and then I'd join the band and it happened to you. <laughs> like that literally happened well, like yeah, a hero asked I you to play. That's amazing. Yeah.
1: Well it was it was a trip, that's for sure. And you know, I I was very young at the time. And Peter always used to say on stage that uh he he misspent his youth playing with Bill Monroe. Um <laughs> uh, so now I ke- I feel like I get to say that I misspent my youth playing with somebody who misspent their youth playing with Bill Monroe.
0: <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's my
1: man. degree of separation there.
0: Yeah, that's great. Um, did you um do you remember like any of those things you're talking kinda of like some of your some of your lessons were like jams or playing on stage or doing some of these teaching things with like John Moore or whatever, but do any of those things kind of stand out? Of things you maybe picked up along the way where you're like man that really uh that was a big change in my playing
1: oh boy that's a good question um i mean i can absolutely tell you what it was it was it was when ronnie mccurry showed me how to play dogs and bull. that was it, you know? Cause it was like that, that sound, that, that Grisman sound. It's like, um, it's when I connected the dots between, when I realized that Grisman Griezmann sound is so different from Bill Monroe's yet. He's playing the Bill Monroe method. Um, the, uh, the ghost notes and the, the syncopation the use the ghost notes and all that stuff. Um, but yeah, when Ronnie McCurry, I mean, because before that, before that, um, to me, that sound was just out of touch. It was magic that that was, that you had to be sprinkled with some kind of fairy dust to be able to play, <laughs> <Right>. you know? <laughs> sure. and, um, and it's, you know, the kind of stuff that like, when I was hearing, I would be like, those aren't even chords that I know. Those aren't even notes that I know. And it turns out, I mean, all it is 4 is and, and they're all in notes, you know what I mean? But it was like, they're like arpeggios. But <laughs> <laughs> right, right. that was a very pivotal moment, um, for sure.
0: Let's talk about the Alan Mundy ga- uh, experience. What was that like? Now, that's one of my favorite albums, him and the, it's out of, long out of print, but the Sam Bush Alan Mundy. Uh, oh, yeah, it's yeah. It's one of my sure. favorites.
1: Uh with Alan, I'm it's I'm fortunate where I live. I live in a town called well, I live between Wimberley and Fisher, Texas, but my address says that I live in Wimberley, but it's right between Austin and San Antonio, but it's been a historically a place where people that a lot of artists that work the Austin music scene can live more affordably. <laughs> <laughs> sure. And it's out in the sticks, so I think, you know, I think there's a lot of people that work in in music and stuff kind of like like to live, I mean, a lot of people like to live in town too, but it seems like a lot of people like to live outside of town as well. And Alan, when he was still teaching at the Bluegrass College in Leveland, he, he was married to the, I mean, he's still married, but his wife lived here because she taught in San Marcos, and so he would come and... Come home to Wimberley whenever he was out of school, you know and and he started calling me to come over to jams and basically I mean he's like my neighbor, you know, and I mean Sarah jerose is my neighbor she you know i I first started working with her on the mandolin when she was nine years old, and
0: oh holy cow cool man
1: Paul glass lives in Wimberley now too, and so you know it's like a it's like a um uh, i don't know it's a it's kind of like a there's some people out in the hills here, (laughs) but, but Alan is my neighbor. And so like, so eventually at some point in the two eyes string band history, we were like deciding whether to, you know, stop or, or move on or whatever. We were playing as a trio, me and Brian and Jeff union. And, um, and then um, we were kind of like, we had been doing that for years and it was just kind of getting old. And it was kind of like, okay, well we're going to either do something or we'll just, Stopped, you know. We were going to put together this band with Two High String Band, so I I I emailed Alan and I was like, "Hey man, would you be willing to play on some recordings?" Um, and he was like, "He was like, well, I just retired. I'm moving back to town. I'll be willing to play on anything you want." And so, <laughs> and so we got this band together. The last version of the Two High String Band was, or the last record we did was with Alan, and then Mark Rubin from the Bad Livers was playing bass, and Eric Hokinen, and he played fiddle with us. had this badass six-piece bluegrass band for a couple years there with alan playing mandolin and then that sort of crumbled apart and then eventually he's he approached me and was like hey man let's just we should just do he was just being funny but you know he was like we should just ditch all these other guys and play play a duet record or something and so um and so we did we worked on the first record for a couple years and then, and then recorded that. And then after that was done, we worked on the second record for a couple years. You know, we still are working on new stuff. I've been fortunate to work with a lot of great banjo players, but I've been fortunate to work with a lot of people that I really, really, really admire. And, and I would say him and Vassar Clements and Tony Trishka, those, those guys are all so cool and nice and encouraging and just, sweet, genuine human beings that, um, I feel really lucky to, to have Alan, uh, in my life on a regular basis.
0: <laughs> yeah. That's amazing, yeah. man.
1: Yeah, for sure. I'm, I'm, I'm I don't, I, it doesn't, it's not lost on me. <laughs> yeah. You
0: could tell, you don't, it, it, yeah. Like you don't, yeah. not at all, man. That's amazing. You are, that's, I'm just sitting here like, this is incredible. And then, and then you put together, and then you got Wood and Wire, who've got a brand new elbow out.
2: Dig a hole, dig a hole in the meadow, dig a hole in the cold, cold ground. From dust we're riding in the dust we lie, we're lying all around. Dig a hole, dig a hole in the meadow,
1: dig a hole in the cold hard plain. If things don't fly, we all gonna die, and you can't take your money to the grave.
0: no matter where it goes from here and dude it is it is one of those albums that like i would i can imagine just hearing at like a hang with somebody or like have you guys have you heard this album it's just one of those albums that's just so good the songs are great it's it's um easy to listen to and it just seems like an album that somebody would turn somebody else onto and you'd be like holy cow
1: oh wow cool man well I, that's great to hear you know it's it's definitely a lot of heart and soul went into that it's uh but you know you get lost in the process so so and it, it, you get to a point where you you got to get it you got to hear that from somebody who's never listened to it before so i appreciate you saying that yeah <laughs> man well dude yeah. it's just
0: like it's got songs it's got it's got stories it's got it's got like soul and vibe
1: nice man well that's great to hear really truly
0: how how long have you guys been working on it? Did it get pushed back at all because of any of the uh, of the current circumstances or did it come out as planned?
1: Well, no, actually, um I mean, there's a little bit of a wild story involved there, but I don't know if it's necessary in the description here, but um we were we we were fortunate in that we we're sort of on the tail end of the sort of booking process of our last record. Our last record had come out in, I don't know, 2018 or the February of 2018, I think. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, we were a couple years into it. And so it was kind of like, you know, we were ready for something new to put out there. And so we were already, we had already been in pre-production, working out the tunes and recording demos and stuff for, for a good while. And last, about last September we decided to step on the gas and and book some studio time over the, over last fall and winter. And, um, we went in and recorded about 15 or 16 songs. And, um, and we had them all basically done and, and mixed by like February 26th. And, um, and then our the guy who runs our record label went in for a medical procedure to have like a double lung transplant. Whoa. Um and uh and then like 2 weeks later the covid thing happened and we were, I mean, everything was just like holy crap, you know, we were all just like floating in space and then and then so a couple few weeks after that we had a sort of a meeting and we were like well <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, we had pl- we had planned on releasing it right about the time that we were going to release it. Right now, we were going to release it in the you know summer, late summer or fall of right now. Mm-hmm. And um, and uh, last March, when all that stuff happened, we were kind of like, well, uh, I don't know what's going to happen now with with the COVID and with um, with Dindy at the record label, and um, it was it was kind of like strange timing for a couple of things to coincide inside there. And then like at the end of March, I think it was, I got this phone call from Denby and he had, he had gone through like five crazy weeks of this stuff. And he sounded just like, his, I mean, this is the same guy that I used to release records with too high string bandwidth. I've been working with him for like 20 years. I've oh, cool. Done like six records with him. So, um, uh, so we're old, Old pals and and I got a call from him and he was like, "Hey man, how's it going?" You know, sounded just like his old self. And I was like, "What is going on here?" And um and then he was like, "Well, you know, what do you think? Should we put the should we should we do it?" And I was like, "I was like, man, I I don't know what to do, but but um but he was like, I think we should. I think it'll be a good time to do it. You know, I think it'll be good to get it out there. And we had a band meeting and we all agreed that it was just you know why not? I mean, you know why." Yeah. Why not just give every give put something out there? It's you know, no reason to not let people hear a bunch of new music when it when we're all wondering what to do.
2: groundwater <laughs> brushes up against boulders on Galveston Island sits my buddy John. He's been in the shop, fixing up
0: furniture, damaged by floods that have come.
1: No, there's no reason not to put it out. It's what you know, um, just because we can't go do a tour around it or whatever. I was kind of like, that was cool with me because you know, I mean, I love playing gigs and all that, but I mean, I've been traveling, playing music for a really long time, so to get a to get a to get time off where it wasn't me having to go, I want time off. (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't, you know. I mean, right. I mean, financially, it's not the best thing that's ever happened to me, but but I will say that uh, I didn't see not being able to tour to support a record as a reason to not put one out. I guess we were fortunate that we had an album that was just just getting, you know, it had been finished to the point to where we could finish the rest of it via text by the engineer sending us final mixes and us going, oh, ah, yeah, tweak this, tweak that, and then getting it. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. doing the rest, the last. The last tweaks through the through the we transfer
0: the, the mandolin sounds which we'll does go back to uh, to the tone we were talking a little bit earlier. Um, your mandolin tone is so good. You've got a real like a real classic vintage sort of don't hang it around if you like it that way. I mean, it didn't surprise me at all then, to hear like all these, you know, the Grisman stories because that's what it really reminded me of. But it's also unique; it doesn't it doesn't ape Grisman at all. It just sounds like somebody who was influenced by, sure. by David. It's kind of like your own. Oh, thank you, absolutely. Thank you. So, do you have a, a main axe you used? Well, it's it's altered through the years. I have this. I have this
1: uh my classic old axe is is my gilchrist um f five and um but i i uh i started playing in a band with well a bunch of different bands with tom Ellis about fifteen or more years ago and um i guess about thirteen years ago or something he he kind of offered to give me a sweetheart deal on a, on a mandolin is sort of an artist deal or whatever. And, um, so I've been an, an an Ellis guy ever since then. I still play my Gilchrist. I played it a lot on that new record. It records really good, but it doesn't travel really good anymore. The Gilchrist that I have, it's kind of crazy. It was, it was made, uh, it was made for Aubrey Haney. Um, and it was one of his acts when he was playing with Clint Black. But then it was in some studio fire in Nashville and the guy who was playing the guy who was playing banjo for the two high string band at the time, this was like 1997, I think. And, um, he, uh, he was Charlie Darrington with his brother-in-law. And so, um, this mandolin was in a studio fire in Nashville and it came into Charlie Darrington's shop and he's, you know who he is, right? Yeah. He's yeah. Like the guy. Yeah. And, um, of course, but, um, but he, so he, he, he like rebuilt it and then, um, I was able to acquire it from him through David, um, before it went on the marketplace. And I got it for like, you know, not Gilchrist prices. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. And, 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 um, and so, uh, I mean, like, way not Gilchrist prices. And so, so that one has been, it's kind of, it's an, it's an, it's an amazing axe, but it doesn't, uh, like I said earlier, I mean, when it gets changes in temperature and stuff like that, it's got really thin, a really thin top. So it's, um, it's pretty moody. So once I got this Ellis, it just stays in tune all the time. And, um, um, it's, it's my main axe that I use, especially for touring and traveling. It's an Ellis. F5 that, that, uh, Tom, I think he said it's the first mandolin that he ever had to, some guy bought it and couldn't pay for it. So he gave it back to Tom and Tom told me, well, I'll, I'll make it, I'll make it the way that you want it. Um, as if you had custom ordered it, you know? And so I had him, I had him do a black, a black top on it. And it's basically a non radius fretboard, a tiny radius, but not like a radius fretboard at all. And I use the 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 little frets that like the old, not the like Sam Bush electric guitar frets, which are the standard in almost every mandolin these days, but like the old, the old tiny frets. And I have those like those gold ones, those like OEM or whatever they are. Uh, Um, EVO. EVO, yeah, and they're those tiny size. And Tom was like, "Man, he ordered enough of it because he's put it in all my other mandolins too over the years." And he was like, "Man." He's like, I bet you you're the only guy in the world that has this size of EBO on their mandolin. He's like, nobody plays this size fret anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but, but they were, so my Gilchrist came with no, no, um, cause it was a custom order from, of Aubrey's. And since he's a fiddle player, I guess, he ordered it without any, um, inlays on the fretboard. Oh, wow. So the fretboard is all, you know, just black. And, um, so I had him do that on the Ellis and I had him put those same tiny frets on it and, um, uh, make the neck, the neck on the Gilchrist is like a, it's weird. Cause I played like Ronnie Gilchrist and I played a bunch of other Gilchrist and they're so different from mine. And, you know, I talk about those, those times back when I was playing with Peter and, and really around all those, that, that community a lot. And, and, uh, when I run into those guys these days, that's the first thing they always say to me is, you still got that mandolin? <laughs> and, um, cause it's, it's a really weird, uh, kind of a weird one. Um, uh, but so I have those two mandolins and then I have a 1927, um, Gibson Mandola that I play on a bunch of stuff. Um, and, uh, that I bought from Tony Williamson about 25 years ago or something. He told me that, he told me that David Grisman had once owned it. Oh wow. And that was before that was before I realized that you could say that about almost any vintage <laughs> mandolin that exists out there. It's kinda right. like saying it's a it's <laughs> like an old D eighteen that Norman Blake once owned, you know. <laughs> right, um, right. but uh but so I've got that and then I've also got um on a semi permanent loan this nineteen thirteen um F four. Um, that is something that the guy Denby that I was talking about who owns our record label he's a picker um, and he uh, but he doesn't play mandolin and I I fell in love with this mandolin about 20 years ago and then it went to live with a friend of his for many many years then about four years ago right about the time we were recording North of Despair um, I was over at his house and he was like hey look what I got back and he and he had it he let me take it with me and I've had it I've had it ever since. And that's and I play it on a lot of stuff. Um it's such a such an iconic sound. You know, they ha it's like it's like if you play Strat all the time and then you have a telly to play on some songs, you know. Um and then I've also got mandolin that I'm in the process of acquiring from a friend of mine, but I, I've it's been in my in my you know, sort of recording rack it, i used it in the last record um and it's uh it's the 1920s um it's a 23 or 24 i think it's a lore era gibson a4 but oh. it's a snakehead you know yeah and so it's like those snakeheads i don't know what it was about those snakeheads from when lore was there even though it's not signed by lore it's like everything in the factory during that time improved and it's it reminds me of that one that Andy Statman used to play when he played on all that Red Hot Pickers stuff with, yeah. with Trisha and Rowan and all that stuff. Um, it's just got such a, a beautiful, deep, resonant voice that um, it's uh, um, it's a really unique accent, and I i i I just love that. Um, so those are my mandolins. And this is the weirdest thing. This is how I sort of know that I'm destined to be in this band or with me. So my my old mandola, my old mandola, it like, I was, it's, it's, I use it on roadies circles, which is one of Trevor's banjo songs on their our latest record. pigs i used it on uh several other songs in our set and definitely in the new stuff and um and um you know everybody made fun of me when i first started bringing it into the band oh mandola you know and, and then <laughs> and then you know it turned out to be uh uh you know part of the part of the deal but but so it was it's a 1927 it has one of those old cases and the case was i i I dragged this mandolin around with two high string band and, and all these bands for, for years and years. So the that old 27 case was just beat to shit where the bottom of it was like falling out, you know, and the handle was like, was like a piece of rope with duct tape wrapped around <laughs> it. And every time you picked it up, it left goo in your hand and stuff. And, <laughs> and so, but like, eventually I was like, man, this case just isn't working. And I was trying to find cases. I was calling people. I called, grew in guitars. I called Carter guitars. I asked him if they had any men, old Mandola cases. And they both laughed at me. And, um, <laughs> you know, and, and then, and then, and then, so, so like, and then Tony, our, our lead singer and guitar player one day, he was just like, Oh, I think I have a Mandola, Mandola case in my closet. <laughs> and it turns out he's had this case in his closet. He doesn't have a Mandola. He's never had a Mandola. He doesn't have a mandolin. He, I mean, he, Actually, we met. He was an old mandolin student of mine, but he doesn't have a mandolin. But he has this mandola case that perfectly fits my mandola. So
0: that is odd. That's <laughs> isn't that bizarre? Dude, isn't that bizarre?
1: That so, is crazy. anyway,
0: it's like somebody owed him like 20 bucks. Like, you want a case? Well, right? Yeah, I guess <laughs> exactly. I'm not gonna get 20 bucks. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> well, man, I got time for two more questions here for you. Um, it's just, right. but, dude, you have got great stories. <laughs> it's, just like, it's just when I'm like, Oh, I couldn't have a cooler story. Well, then I got this Gilchrist that had been in a studio fire and then Darrington. And I'm like, geez, man, that's <laughs> so cool. Oh man. Love. I love it. And then your mandolin. Then suddenly you guys got a mandola case. <laughs> it's awesome. <laughs> so, um, the first question is that the 10 minute a day question where, um, I'd ask players like yourself, if for people who don't have, um, you know, a lot of time to play, uh, if you had 10 minutes to recommend for them to just to focus on something to work on that would help them get better, what would you, what would you recommend?
1: Well, I, I tend to be a right hand guy. Uh, and, uh, I used to give lessons a lot and i I'd, and I'd, I'm sort of working my way into getting back into that in the, and the, digital world these days, but, um, but, uh, the, one of the things that I always taught was, um, working on the subdivisions of the beat with the right hand. And, um, that's something where you can sit down and, and really slowly, I've gotten to see a lot of the guys that, that we all think are, off the mandolin players because they are... I've gotten to see a lot of them warm up and and generally speaking, like, there's that one guy, I won't mention his name, but, but, um, you know, watching these guys warm up, they're generally not playing a bunch of fast licks. (laughs) (laughs) Right. They're going like... You know, and so, so, like, trying to... With taking your right hand and, and starting, like bomb, boom, down, up, down, up, and really getting down to the basics of trying to find some uh, equality between your downstroke and your upstroke, you know, really mm-hmm. slowly. And then, and then taking a slow click and subdividing the beats. You have your half note, your quarter note, those are all downstrokes, right? You know, and then you've got your eighth note, down, up, down, up, down, up, down, up. Then you have your, um, your, um, or I guess between your quarter note and your eighth note, you have your, your, uh, quarter note triplet. If you really want to be, if you really want to be, um, technical about it, but so you get to your eighth, you get to your eighth notes, but then your eighth note triplets, da right and then you can you can do those down up 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 or down up down down up down down up down down up down you know. And there's sort of a limitation based on speed, you know. And like if you play Irish music or whatever, that down up down down up down down up down down, that's a whole like life study of 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 mandolin method right there. But like, if you play Sam Bush method, then the down, up, down, up, down, up, you know, that's the triplet that you want to really focus on. But, but, um, you don't have to just focus on triplets because then you get to the 16th notes, you know, and so really understanding with the right hand, how to subdivide the beats and how to keep your, um, where you keep your hand moving um down up down up no matter whether you're playing a note or not. Right, right. You know what I mean? That way that way when you do an upstroke when you play a when you play a back beat note, you're playing it with an upstroke instead of a downstroke so your hand doesn't get all flip flopped around. That when you work on subdividing the beats with your right hand, that really helps your fluidity more than anything. I mean, I think fluidity is what we're all Speaking, whether we're playing a really intricate super notey fast song or anybody who's tried to record a really not intricate not noty slow song can tell you that um fluidity is just as much of an issue there <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. if if not more right so, absolutely so fluidity is what we're all going for and um and i think that the the right the right hand um subdivision of the beats is probably the biggest bang for your buck if you've only got 10 minutes um yeah just put your left hand in your back pocket
0: what's your right hand technique for tremolo because you do have you have great cre- tremolo uh tone man uh i mean i guess that's probably a lo- a, a bit of a longer question than uh um uh than, than you know 10 minute a day question well, but it's,
1: i i look I've, i' it's not a question that I haven't been asked before I mean you know giving lessons it's kind of like mandolin lessons everybody wants to play through right right, right. Uh, but but it's i think the trick the trick is is um is pushing through pushing through the two strings to where you're trying- where you're really playing them like they're one note mm-hmm. and you're not hesitating. Um, and, and, and then, you know, and then like, you know, the way that you dig in with your wrist and the way that you can alter the angle of the pick, those are all things that are like the microscopic, uh, sort of like tone altering things, sort of like the volume and tone knob on a telecaster, mm, be, right, you know, those are like, those are your controls. And, um, yeah the the digging in thing with tremolo is 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 uh is very important but also not <laughs> the other trick is you can't um you can't bear down on your pick with your fingers you have to keep the pick um looser than you would think um uh because if you hold the pick tight then it starts to get that brittle Sound, you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. The pick has to have a little give to it. Um, it's uh, it's it's a thing, man. It's a, it's for sure. It's a deep well. <laughs>
0: it is. I know exactly what you're talking about.
1: You know, I will say the thing the thing that I've the thing that I've enjoyed about playing plugged in is that it's let me find the happy medium between playing too hard, and not playing too hard. Because when I was playing not plugged in, I was really a lot of the time sort of limiting what I could do by the, by power, you know, just banging the crap out of it to get, to get the volume and the tone. And and I'm glad that I had that experience because it did help me with tone development and stuff, because in the perfect situation, when you're playing through a microphone and you're in a wonderful environment for that, it's, there's nothing better and there's nothing better for, for finding that beautiful spot for, for developing the tone. But you know, it has been nice to play with a mic and a pickup and be able to kind of just like play. The trick with a pickup is to play like you would if you were sitting around in a living room with your friends and you weren't overplaying, you know, that's the, that's the trick with a pickup. You have to take advantage of what it's offering, which is being able to play light, but you don't want to play too light to where you're, tone suffers. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Exactly. You know what I mean? Because it's like a, there's a, there's a trade off there. you don't want to play too light, but you get playing too hard of a pickup is, is, is raunchy. And, um, but it, it, it enables you to be able to play light like you would, if you were sitting around picking in a picking circle. Um, and, uh, that's, that's a nice thing about it. That's the key. I think with that.
0: Nice. And that leads us to the final question It is a beer question. And do you have a favorite beer?
1: Oh, man, I, I do. I, um, I've got a lot of them.
0: Oh yeah. Um, Let's hear a couple, man.
1: (laughs) Oh, well, I mean, I'll, I'll give you a couple that I, that I've been enjoying. Um, I mean, of course being from Texas, a good old standard is the Lone Star, but, um, but what I really like is my local brewery in Blanco, Texas, um, makes many, many great beers. Their name is Real Ale Brewing. And, um, the latest, that I've been enjoying from them is called fresh kicks. It's their hazy, hazy IPA. And, um, I've been loving that. I also like the Deschutes little squeezy and the, 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 you know, Sierra Nevada. That's an old, I mean, back in the old days when microbreweries were first coming around, they were the only ones that knew, knew what to do. And, um, that old pale ale was, um, was a classic, but I like their uh, what is that one they have now? The um, uh, hazy little thing. That's that's good.
0: Yeah, it's real good.
1: I've been liking these AZ IPAs the uh, last couple of years. I don't know why.
0: Yeah, I've been on a real like. Um, I just played a brewery actually. I played a live gig not too long ago at a brewery. We were about thirty feet away from anybody, so it was nice and safe. But they had a mango IPA that I cannot get oh, yeah. enough of. Man, holy cow!
1: Well, see, that's the thing. Like these people have these breweries have, I don't know if you remember the early nineties when the brewery kits were going out all over every small town in America and every, everywhere had a, had a brewery and they were all like incredibly horrible. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> yeah. but like, totally. but like now, now these folks have figured out like all these great. And so now I'm like drinking these like strawberry Kiwi beers, things that I would have never touched. And they're like really good. Yeah. So I know what you're saying, man. It's, it's uh. It's uh, it's awesome.
0: Yeah, it is, man.
1: <laughs> you know, it's like it's like effects used on a mandolin in a very <laughs> yes, subtle way. That's right. They just bring out the
0: beauty. Yeah, you can enhance it <laughs> or ruin it. It's all right. real exactly. easy. Exactly. <laughs> it's exactly. all it taste.
1: The ball is in your court. Yeah, man. That's right.
0: Well, man. So congratulations on the brand new album. It's it's incredible. The live stream is September twelfth and uh everybody should tune into that so i'll post all the links to your stuff and um dude thank you for doing the podcast
1: awesome yeah man my pleasure let me throw one more thing out there i'm putting together uh i'm at the last stages of putting together a sort of a mandolin instruction uh patreon page and uh and all that that i'm i've been putting together uh content for over the last couple weeks or months or whatever it's been so that's about to come out in the next 24 hours or so so you're looking for you're looking for some mandolin stuff you can find me find me there too Awesome! uh, shoot
0: me that link when you get it when i post all this i'll be sure to put a link on my website and on all the things that i put out there
1: oh great that's awesome yeah well it's been great talking to you and um cheers
0: cheers to you man thank you so much And thank you guys for listening. Thank you to Billy once again for doing the podcast. His brand new album's incredible. Uh, What a a nice guy. (laughs) Talk about stories. Holy cow. Incredible. Um, Next week, Monday, Tristan Scroggins' Track by Track episode will be out. Looking forward to y'all hearing that. He's got a great album uh, with the Scroggins Rose Project. So check that out in the meantime and hear the backstory Monday. Cheers, everybody. Thank you.
2: only 60 miles from east to west streets of dreams